Good morning, church. Who, who actually carries a Bible? I want to see. Even, even Zach, yeah, we've, we've covered that. And any electronic version, you actually bring your own. That's the Reformation. Okay, that's the Reformation, like we saw in our Sunday school class this morning. Sola Scriptura. We take that seriously here at this church. At least we're going to give it a good, honest attempt this morning as we preach through the Scriptures, beginning in Romans chapter 1. If you would turn there now. The uh, verses listed for our text this morning are chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 just so we have the proper context. So follow along if you would. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, Call to saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part... I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for this word, and we pray that like the psalmist, you would teach us to treasure this in our hearts. I pray that you would make us better students of the word, and to that end, I pray that you would help us this morning, that you would grant us illumination, that you would give in our minds understanding of the word preached, and that you would cause this word to be effective in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now, you knew we had to get to it. Since we are spending a month highlighting the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we have no choice but eventually to end up in the book of Romans. Romans being significant in the Reformation. Romans being historically significant, even before the Reformation, often used by God to transform a people, or it was very important to people who were important in the life of the church. This goes all the way back to the second century. One of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, was known as just, um, he valued the book of Romans above others. Uh, He became kind of an early scholar of the book of Romans in the church. But later on in the 4th and 5th century, we see who became known as St. Augustine. 
his life was transformed through a reading of the book of Romans. For him, it was in Romans 13 where it says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And for him, that, was, that just became to him the, the, the bell of freedom as he heard it ringing in his soul as he had been struggling with how he could be right with God because he was so consumed by his sensual desires, but yet put on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provisions to fulfill its, the flesh, the lusts of the flesh. And then, of course, the one we're most familiar with, Martin Luther in the early 16th century, who actually struggling with the passage that we have come to today, especially in verse 16, for in it the righteousness of God revealed. Martin Luther early on took this being to mean the justice of God being revealed, as he saw in verse 18 the wrath of God being revealed. And since he brought these ideas together, he was scared to death of the wrath of God, and he could not bring himself to love this God of wrath until one day he came to a different understanding of the righteousness of God, this righteousness by faith, and thus kicks off the Reformation. Almost two centuries later, John Wesley in 1738 was at a meeting of people where the preface, Luther's preface to the book of Romans was being read. Just a commentary on the scriptures. And he said he felt his heart strangely warmed as he was transformed by this message of a righteousness from God. And added to this list of saints, I learned a new one this week. Donna Robart in the 1970s. Alone with one of her children at home, struggling with deep issues of faith, came to Romans 1 and saw this quotation of Habakkuk, but the righteous shall live by faith. And she said it made all the difference in the world as God continues to bless and use this text, which we're going to focus on here for a few minutes this morning. Let me just give you a brief historical context of the letter itself. Paul here is writing most likely from the city of Corinth near the end of his third missionary journey. His hope is that he eventually will end up in Rome, but first he has to take a detour and go to Jerusalem to give an offering, uh, a trip that did not turn out so well. But yet his hope was to go to Rome and eventually to leave from Rome and go on to Spain because he always was desiring to preach the gospel where it had not yet been preached. He felt that in the Eastern Roman Empire he had gone everywhere he could and he desired to have some fresh soil to go scatter his seeds in. And so his desire was to go to Rome and then on to Spain. This reminded me of an older man I listened to one time who had been a missionary in the Philippines, and his particular job in this ministry in the Philippines really was primarily administrative. He didn't get out among the people much. But one day he got to travel with a church-planting missionary who went to a remote island in the Philippines where the gospel had never been preached. And so he got to take part in evangelism of the tribe where the name of Jesus had never been known. And he described that day as such sweet candy. This is Paul. Paul is always chasing after a little more sweet candy, always wanting to preach the gospel where it had not been known. He did not know many of the people in Rome personally, had met some in his travels, but he had never yet been there. And so he writes a letter ahead of himself, going to introduce himself and his message, this message of the gospel to the people of Rome. And he, he preaches the content of the message, the, the, the kernel, the, the heart of the message is salvation by faith alone. By this time in Paul's life, he is an older evangelist. Uh, he lives another 10 years or so after this, but he's getting older. He's seasoned. And because he is seasoned in the ministry of the gospel, he is also scarred. But is he tired? <laughs> is he ready to give up? To give in? Never. Never. 
we come to our text, and in verse 15 we see, So for my part I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome. And in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And so in our text, we're going to look at four brief points. The first one is Paul's purpose. The second one is Paul's disposition. And that's followed up then by two questions. Well, then what is so great about this gospel? And then finally, what is the gospel? And we find it all here in our text. So Paul's purpose, Paul's purpose, his goal, his task, his obligation, if you will, because at one point he says, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. He, he is driven, and that is to preach the gospel. We see in verse 1 where Paul calls himself a bondservant of Christ, a slave of Christ, who is called as an apostle. The word apostle meaning sent one, a messenger, someone who is sent out with a message from the one whom he serves. And the message for him is the gospel of God. Paul has been set apart for this ministry, and Paul's desires to be faithful to this calling. In verse 9, he thanks God, the God whom he serves in his spirit, in the gospel of his Son. Uh, the NAS inserts the words, the God whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son. That is absolutely faithful to the text and a willing or a necessary or useful addition. So he thanks God whom I serve in the gospel of Son, in preaching the gospel, the good news about his Son, Jesus Christ. Also in verse 13, we've already seen once again, Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you so that I may obtain some fruit, may obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul's desire is to come and preach this gospel, that he might have a harvest of souls among the Romans, as he had elsewhere in Asia Minor and Greece and the Middle East. Verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel. Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 17, for in it, the gospel. Paul's purpose here is obviously the ministry of the gospel. He is after this sweet candy. He is desiring to be used by God in the declaring of Christ where he has not yet been named and to see God bring about this harvest of souls. And that is Paul's purpose. It was not always Paul's purpose but it is Paul's purpose now. And so then we move on and we want to look at Paul's disposition. Paul's disposition really is summed up in the title of our sermon this morning, Eager and Unashamed. We see this in verse 15 and verse 16. I am eager to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This word for eager really has a basic meaning of just ready and willing. And in 1 Peter 3.15, we're all to share this. We're always supposed to be prepared to answer someone who's, who asks us to give a reason for the hope that we have. And Paul is saying that he stands ready. He is willing. But there's really a connotation of eagerness here. And that's a fair interpretation. But with the connotation of chomping at the bit. You know, Paul is the runner at the starting gate. Even though he has been at this for 20 years, Paul has not grown tired of it. Even though Paul has been scarred beyond what many of us could stand, Paul is ready to go. Paul is eager to preach the gospel. But more than that, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I am unembarrassed of the gospel. Now, one author here says that this is really nothing more than synonymous with what we've just said. He's eager to preach the gospel. He glories in the preaching of the gospel is one way to put it. I tend to think he is not ashamed, that he's unembarrassed. I think he's probably heading off some questions that he supposes people are going to ask because they look at Paul You know, the Corinthians looked at Paul and said he's kind of weak and contemptible in person. (laughs) You know, he's not very impressive. 
Okay, they look at Paul. They look at Paul's past. They look at what Paul has suffered and they said, Paul, aren't you a little tired of this? You know, are you maybe ashamed of your task, ashamed of your calling? What has it gotten you, Paul? Well, I'm fascinated by this. You know, in Corinthians, we're told that God often chooses the lowly things of the world to shame the wise. He chooses the, wise, the, the lowly to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong. Well, every once in a while, God chooses a gem. And I think Paul was that kind of gem. Paul was not the lowly of the world. Paul was not the uneducated of the world. He was not the dregs of society. Paul was really the up-and-comer. Paul was born in Tarsus, which was a university city. Now, it was a bunch of Greek-speaking universities, part of the Roman Empire. Paul didn't necessarily attend there, but he grew up in a cosmopolitan city. Paul grew up probably in a family of some means who had already received Roman citizenship a generation or so before him because he himself was born a citizen of Rome. Paul had a certain position. I'm not saying Paul's dad was the family, you know, the town mayor, but Paul had a certain position in society. He was born into it, a position of privilege in a very cosmopolitan place. But by his own testimony, he then moved to Jerusalem to continue his education, where he studied under one of the famous teachers of the day. That would be like going off to, you know, Princeton or Harvard or for those in the church, Westminster. You know, Paul went to the school. Paul had the educational pedigree, studying under Gamaliel. He was a fast-rising Pharisee. Paul understood the law. Paul obeyed the law. Paul obeyed the teachings and the traditions of his elders, And Paul, if he was not yet on the committee, probably not yet, we don't know his exact age, you had to be a certain age to be a part of the council, the council, the Sanhedrin, the ones who ruled in the Jewish affairs and the daily life of the Jews. He may not have been on it, but he was on his way. And because he was on his way, and because he was probably at least a man of some means, maybe wealthy, it's possible, possible, Glenn said this morning Paul was, was not married, and by the time he gives that testimony later in his life, he wasn't. But it's conceivable that Paul was, because to be on the council, he would have had to been. Okay, so that's a little surmising. I don't want you to hang your hat on that as absolute fact. But Paul had it all. Paul was prominent. On the worldly stage, at least among his people, he was the it man, the fast riser, the shooting star. Until... Until Jesus appeared to him one day, and then everything went to everything went the other direction. He lost it all. Later on, Paul says, "You know, uh, I have the right to a believing wife, but I don't have one." Uh, Paul says he knows what it's like to have much and to have little, and he's learned the secret of being content. Paul Paul suffered a great deal. Remember, one time early on, it says that he even had to be let down in a basket through the city walls rather than to be captured. You know, Paul was not, it, it didn't go well for Paul from there on out. Paul's life took a change of direction. I want to read just a little bit of Paul's own testimony about himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Just starting in verse 23, just, just listen. This is because Paul is now a servant of Christ. Speaking of other people who would oppose him, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys. 
in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among the false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, all because of the ministry of the gospel. You sure you're not ashamed, Paul? And if you're not ashamed, are you sure it's worth what it cost? Not ashamed. Not one bit. Paul's testimony in Philippians says he considers everything that he used to have as rubbish compared to what I have gained in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is eager to preach this gospel. Paul is unashamed of this gospel. And so that's Paul's disposition. And that brings us then to two questions, because Paul has said a lot about the gospel. He's used the word gospel over and over and over again. And so have I this morning. I've tried to kind of give you a flavor here of what Paul is talking to the Romans about. And so this brings us to our questions. What is so great about this gospel, Paul? What is it that you have willingly thrown away all your possessions, all your reputation, all your education, all of your standing, possibly all of your family. What is it, Paul? What is so great about it? What is so great about it? Well, one, one, what is so great about the gospel? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. It is the power of God for salvation. The idea of salvation here in the Old Testament really was just the idea of going from a brokenness or impoverishment or even to a defeatedness when it came to military endeavors to a wholeness, to prosperity, even to victory. There's a transformation. There's a transferal, a change of condition. In the New Testament, this word came to be adopted to mean God's deliverance of man from sin, death, and judgment because you were the one who was broken unwhole, defeated. And yet God, in the gospel, delivers man from sin, death, and judgment. And so the preaching of the gospel unto the salvation of sinners is a manifestation of the power of God, similar to the manifestations of God's power at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Similar display of power. The power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that transforms a man or a woman or a child, and makes him a believer who was before an enemy of God. In chapter 1, verse 4 here in Romans, we see that speaking of Jesus Christ, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And it is this same power now that Paul speaks of in verse 16. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So what's so great about this gospel? It is the power of God for salvation. It is God's appointed effectual means of rescue for the hopeless for the lost, for the defeated, for the broken. It is effective. It works. It is God's ordained means. And by the way, there is no other means given. I think that's important in our day. There's no other means given. It is the preaching of the gospel that God uses to transform individuals. It is not the latest program. It is not the latest music. And I'm not against programs and or music. Love them both. But it's the preaching of the gospel that God has ordained and that God uses. And sometimes I think our insistence, our desire to be relevant in choosing the more modern way or the latest fad, I really think that's us being ashamed 
of the gospel. But yet, God has said, it is the power of God for salvation to all those who believe. It may be foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are the called of God, it is the wisdom of God. And it leads to salvation. It is effective. So what's so great about the gospel? It's God's means, and it is effective. It is a display of His power. And secondly, what's so great about it? It's available to everyone. It's available to all who will believe, faith being the only condition by which God grants forgiveness of sins. No one is excluded. You know, in verse 14, he said that he's under obligation to preach to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. Here in verse 16, when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, it says the Jew first... And there is some truth to this idea that the gospel came to the Jews first. Jesus came to the Jews first and then the Greeks. So there's a chronological comparison or or chronological order here that is accurate. But this is actually a figure of speech saying that it's for everyone. It's for the Jew and for the Greek. As he said before, it is for the Greek and the barbarian. So for us, I would say it is for the white and for the black. It is for the North and the South. It is for the Democrat and the Republican. It is for the American and the North Korean. It is for a Muslim. It is for a Hindu. It is for those who kneel at NFL games and for those who don't. It is for everyone. It is the gospel that they all need to hear. And it is the gospel that God uses to transform For everyone who will believe, there is a condition here. It's not a universalism, but it is a universal offer. And it is available. And it's available to you. If you have not yet trusted in Christ the gospel, it's available to you. All God says is believe. Take him at his word. But yet Paul has not yet told us what the gospel is. But by now, don't you think some might be asking, Paul, tell me. (laughs) What is this gospel? You're so eager and unashamed. It's for everyone. It's the power of God. What is it? Do you want to know? Some of you know. What is the gospel? In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul is getting ready to spell it out for us, but he takes about eight chapters or so to do it. And so... The challenge for Paul here is, is how do I say it all in a nice simple phrase as I introduce the point of my letter and yet don't leave it out? And when you're trying to come up with a term that is both comprehensive and accurate, it always misses something. And so Paul comes to verse 17 and he says, In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. This term, righteousness of God. It is an adumbration, which means just kind of a summary or a foreshadowing. It's a term telling us what is to come, and it's true, yet it's vague. You know, if I simply tell you the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed, you get that, right? Not exactly. It needs some explanation. Now, Paul's going to spend eight chapters explaining it. I'm going to give you a meaning for it that is faithful to those eight chapters. Okay, so our adumbration... You know, it's, it's a concise term, and yet it's full. J.I. Packer would call something like that. He liked the term pregnant brevity. I love that. There's just a picture of fullness. <laughs> and yet it's all packed into this little phrase. The righteousness of God revealed. And really, what Paul's after here, 
is to answer the question for everybody, because like it or not, everybody has the question. I don't think, you know, atheists don't believe in God. God doesn't believe in atheists. Everybody asks the question, how can I be right with God? And that is the question the gospel answers, and it is answered in the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. You cannot be righteous. You cannot be righteous on your own. But there is a righteousness, the righteousness of God. Now, let's look at that phrase specifically. The righteousness of God is revealed. I find the translation confusing there. Uh, you know, at least one word doesn't appear in the original text. The, it could be uh, I believe it's just uh, the the is okay, but the righteousness of God. And as you heard from Dr. Futado last week, of can be a very interesting word. It can mean all kinds of different things, and I won't go through all of his examples. But this, faithfully to the text, is probably better said, it's the righteousness from God. The righteousness from God. And this is the sense that Martin Luther came to understand it in. This is not the sense that Calvin thought was best. I have to give you full disclosure. But he did say the text would bear this meaning. And most of the reformers came to understand this as a righteousness from God. Certainly, it's true that this could be God's righteousness himself because God rightly justifies or saves sinners because God can do what he wants and all that God does is right and it's fit and it's consistent with who he is. But in the best sense, this is the righteousness that we need, which we cannot produce on our own and is only received by faith. This answers the great question, how can I be right with God? Well, you can't unless God does something about it. And praise God, he does. In sending his own son to the cross, the guilt and the responsibility of my sins, of your sins, of all our sins, are counted as his, and he is punished for them as if they're his. And all that he earned by his faithful obedience and his willing suffering, his merits and his rights, then are counted as yours and mine. And so God accepts us as if we were righteous. Christ himself was not made a sinner. He was punished as one. And we are not made righteous, but we are received by God and accepted by him as if we are because of the cross of Christ. Theological terms, they use the word imputation because everything that Christ was is imputed to you. It is counted as you. You are not transformed and somehow made more beautiful and then acceptable to God, you are acceptable to God because of Christ. That is the righteousness from God, this alien righteousness that is offered for you and offered for me. It is imputation, not infusion. I have to throw this in here because we are in a celebration of the Reformation, and so I do, must, I do have to mention the Roman Catholic understanding here because they say that it is righteousness from God, but that this righteousness is somehow implanted or infused in you So that now you have a new ability to obey, to desire the things of God. And so that if you will cooperate with those things, if you will attend to the faithful administration of all the sacraments of the Catholic Church, whether it be confession or attendance at the Mass or the last rites or any of these other things, then on the basis of all of that righteous living, then you are acceptable to God. And it all begins as He infused you to eventually make you righteous if you cooperate with the work of God. That still depends on you. That's infusion. The Reformation doctrine we're celebrating this morning is imputation. Because this is a righteousness from God that he simply gives you. 
if you will take him at his word. This is a righteousness from faith to faith. It begins and ends with faith. Faith brings you into the life of God. Faith keeps you in the life of God and helps you live the life of God and then brings you home. It is by faith. It is my favorite definition of faith is simply taking God at his word. You know, in Genesis, when when God made promises to Abraham and he said, look unto the stars and all your descendants will be this numerous. And it said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. A few years earlier, he had said to Abraham, leave your land, leave your family, go to the land I will show you and I will bless you there. And what did Abraham do? He got up and went. Faith has always been an active and living faith. But why did he get up and go? Because he believed God. He simply took God at his word. And today, the Lord offers you his righteousness. A righteousness from outside of yourself. A righteousness that you can't produce. A righteousness that you do not own. You have nothing to bring. He gives it. All who will believe. All who will take him at his word as the faithful God that he is. As the generous, merciful God that he is. So if you've never responded to this call of the gospel, this gospel that Paul preaches here in the book of Romans, this gospel that we preach from this pulpit, this gospel that we believe, if you've never responded to the call of the gospel, make today your day. Make today your day. Believe in this thing that God offers as a gift. It is God who qualifies people and receives to himself those who could never get there on their own. I used to watch a lot of travel videos, and I wish I could find the one I'm referring to because I can't tell you the exact island and the exact festival. But there is one island, I believe, in the Indonesian archipelago, which is the most numerous and populated Muslim country in the world. But there's one island that's Hindu. And every year they have this festival, and it'll make you weep. They have this festival where they're going to bring offerings up to their gods. There are many gods up in the temples at the end of the street. And everybody waits. They're just anxious. The young men are just waiting to get old enough to, give their, to have their opportunity so that, so that they, can, they can help take this offering. But what's unique is how they take it. They build these barges, these parade floats, and they cover it up with all sorts of goods and monies and offerings for the gods up in the temple. And then the young men who are going to take part in this all start taking a sedative, something to help numb them. Because then they bring out these giant fish hooks that look like meat hooks, and they actually put them through the skin of their backs, and like a herd of cattle, they pull these carts through the town to make offerings to their God while their blood flows in the streets. And it's a God that cannot save. It's a God who has nothing to offer. But yet in our imaginations, we think religion has to do with what we do for them. And here God offers you righteousness, right standing with him because of the blood of Christ, because of the gift God gave. It's what he does for us. And I beg you this morning, in the name of Christ, if you have not believed God and taken him at his word, make it today. Make it today. If you have seen the goodness of God, if you count yourself among the redeemed, if you gather together with his people regularly then it is not morbid introspection for you to reconsider what God has done for you. And this should drive you to worship. This should drive you to rejoice because God has overcome your failures, your sins, your inability. He has saved you from your sin, death, and judgment. And he has called us together to worship him. And then finally, go tell somebody.
Let, let your disposition be like that of Paul's. Be eager and unashamed. Go tell somebody. I read recently one of the reasons the PCA is so involved in church planting is because church plants, one to two-thirds of their new members come from outside the church. Where churches that are about 15 years old, 90% of their new members come transferred from other churches. It's no longer conversion growth, at least generally not. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe the church exists for the church because it is for the instruction of God's people, for the building up of the body of Christ, and to, to the training of God's people so that they might go and do the work of ministry. But the work of ministry includes evangelism, and I'm afraid sometimes we act a little bit ashamed of the gospel. Will you please go tell somebody about the gospel? Let's not let that be true of us. Our church is now 12 years old from its incorporation. Let's pray and ask God for a harvest of souls. Now, I don't tell you about Paul and try to compare you to Paul to shame you into action. I don't. I really don't. not trying to lay a guilt trip on you. But yet Paul found something that made everything worth it. Don't you want some of that? Don't you want some of that sweet candy that Paul constantly pursued? Let's go tell somebody. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would apply it to every individual here in very specific ways according to your will. To those of us that need urged on to greater efforts in this ministry of the gospel, Lord, then move us. Move us. For those of us who simply need to believe it more deeply so that we ourselves are more secure in our faith and not so easily tossed about, then, Lord, strengthen our convictions. And for those of us, Lord, who have never yet come to you and receiving from you this gift that only you give because of the cross of Christ, then I pray that they would today receive and look to you and believe you, take you at your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.